Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. Chapter 10. Arnhem. It was now decided that the Allied Airborne Army of one British Airborne Division and two American Airborne Divisions should be dropped at three points in front of the 2nd British Army, which was making a spectacular advance, led by 30 Corps under their Commander Lieutenant General Brian Horrocks. This huge mass drop was to lay a carpet through Eindhoven to Arnhem. In addition, there was to be one Air Portable Division held in reserve. The commander of this force was General Lewis N. Brereton, U.S. Air Force. The main airborne task was commanded by Lieutenant General F.A.M. Browning, CBO, DSO. The allotment was 1st Airborne Division to Arnhem, 101st American Airborne Division to open a corridor from Eindhoven to Grava, and 82nd Airborne Division to establish its central section at Grava, Nijmegen, and to capture the high ground south of Nijmegen. To the 1st Airborne Division, under the command of Major General R.E. Urquhart, CB, DSO, fell the duty of capturing the bridge at Arnhem. Perhaps one of the major problems of this operation was the fact that the Royal Air Force could not carry the whole force in one lift. It would involve at least two, and as it eventually turned out, three lifts. The whole division was to be used together with the Polish Parachute Brigade. Another major problem was flak. The town of Arnhem was very well protected by anti-aircraft guns from the German airfield at Dieland, just north of Arnhem, and slow-flying aircraft stood little chance of approaching the city by daylight. It was therefore necessary for the dropping and landing zones to be well beyond the range of the guns at Dieland, but the country around Arnhem is for the most part well wooded and the number of suitable open fields very limited. The total number of officers and men who were to be airborne was 8,969, plus 1,126 glider pilots. It is not the intention here to go into a detailed description of the plan of the Battle of Arnhem. This again belongs to the soldiers, and this book is the story of the glider pilot regiment. In this particular case, the glider pilot regiment was to be used as a whole, and one important feature of the plan was to retain the glider crews in a defensive role in order that there might not be costly casualties. This was considered essential for every available aircrew was to be used. In fact, 90% of the regiment was committed to the action, and in effect there were no reserves. The landing zones were such that the rendezvous for the troops after landing was one and a half to two miles from the landing area. It was considered that it would take something like two hours for them to get to the rendezvous, allowing half an hour for unloading the glider. 
One of the complications was that the British Airborne Division was to be at the farthermost point from the three other areas where the American divisions were to be dropped. In fact, no one knew whether the supporting forces would be able to conquer Eindhoven and Nijmegen or be in a position to relieve the 1st Airborne Division at Arnhem. It was because they were chiefly airborne that the regiment was armed mainly for defensive fighting and had to be regarded as a unit within the 1st Airborne Division. The divisional commander controlled the regiment on the ground, but he was limited to a proviso that the fighting potential of the glider pilot regiment must be used solely in a defensive role. I therefore detailed the pilots on landing to form into squadrons and come under the command of their respective wing headquarters. Number one wing would be under the orders of headquarters 1st Airborne Division and number two wing under the 1st Air Landing Brigade, whom they were respectively carrying. They would carry out such defensive tasks as would be allotted by the divisional commander and would withdraw as soon as the situation allowed. This was to be one of the greatest mass landings of glider and parachute troops, 588 horses and four Waco gliders, carrying elements of the British 1st Airborne Division, the Polish Parachute Brigade and the 878th US Aviation Engineering Battalion Airfield Control Unit, had to be put down on four landing zones in the area of Arnhem. Apart from the problems of getting such a large force into the air, the landing itself was comparatively easy, particularly as the whole thing was to be done by day. However, the weather element did have to be considered and therefore a reasonable cloud base had to be available. It was believed that a 15-knot downwind would be apparent on the landing zone. Pilots were to be helped by certain aids such as smoke panels and lights. By now, the 1st Airborne Corps had its headquarters at Moore Park and it was here that all the planning and discussions took place. The lift being so complicated called for much discussion and it was not surprising that there was a certain amount of disagreement among the planners. I had my headquarters moved nearer to the east coast for we were stretched to the limits of our range by now. The date of the first lift was to be the 17th of September 1944 and I was permitted to take an active part in this operation because I was to fly General Browning, his batman, his doctor and his cook together with his jeep and his tent. The HQ Airborne Corps had decided to be dropped with the American 82nd Airborne Division at Nijmegen. Therefore, I had to study my own landing zone in that area, and we did everything possible to brief the glider pilots in order that they should make no mistake on landing. Our landing zone was near the Reichswald Forest, where General Browning had decided to make his headquarters. So far as the enemy was concerned, there were 4,000 SS cadets in the Nijmegen area, which was their training centre. September 17th blossomed fine, and I shall always remember walking down to Harwell Airfield to gather up my belongings to climb into my glider. The airfield was a mass of gliders and soldiers and parachutists and tug aircraft and Royal Air Force personnel. There was a great air of business, but little solemnity, and it did not seem possible that we were taking off for one of the greatest battles in history. On the first day, there were to be 359 gliders in the first lift. It was a great day for General Browning because it was the first opportunity he had had to go into operations and take part in all that he had prepared. He came to the glider immaculately dressed in a Barathea battle dress with a highly polished Sam Brown belt, knife-edge creased trousers, leather revolver holster, all gleaming like glass, a swagger cane in one hand and wearing kid gloves. He was in tremendous form because he realised that he had reached one of the climaxes of his career. There was immense gaiety everywhere. General Browning entered the aircraft and I took my place on the port side with Andy Andrews on the starboard side. General Browning had an old Worthington crate put down at the pilot's door and sat between us. Soon the signal to take off was given 
And as the great sterling moved forward and the rope tautened, I could feel the surge forward of the glider as we hurtled down the runway. We veered a bit, and round came the tail of the sterling, but I checked this, and soon we were both in the air, climbing up, up, until, finally, we turned towards the coast. It was a fantastic sight. Thousands of gliders and tugs seemed to be everywhere, above us, in front of us, below us, and behind us. Soon we were over the sea, which was like glass, with ships dotted here and there, obviously marker ships in case we came down. At last we were over the Dutch coast and moving inland. Spitfires and tempests whizzed past us. We could see them shooting up flak positions as we flew on. Soon Andy told me that we were nearing the landing zone and I took over. I decided to land by the funnel system, so Andy was to give me the position as we came in. I was tense as we flew along the line and I can still hear Andy shout, point A coming up, then point B, then point C, and my own hoarse voice shouting, let her go! The tow rope coiled away like a giant snake, and we were alone in the air. The Stirling bomber rose and turned away, and we knew we were going down. There was no going back now. I saw flak bursting all round us. I heard Andy calling out the height, 1,500, 1,000, and then I did my turn and straightened up. I felt a great calm come over me as I turned in. I suppose that is always the way. We landed in a small allotment garden behind some cottages. I had picked out my patch and realised as I did so that it contained row upon row of cabbages. Immediately in front of it was an electric cable that I'd forgotten all about. Down went the glider and bang, bang, the front wheel came off. The glider settled herself among the cabbages and we stepped onto Dutch soil. Gliders landed round me everywhere and I saw Billy Griffith away to the left. It seemed extraordinary that we were received so calmly. A few old Dutch peasants came and looked at us but there was no military action whatever. It was strange and rather eerie. It didn't seem right. Up the road, the 1st British Airborne Division also had the same reception and they were able to load and start on the road to their objective unmolested. Captured German documents have shown that the Germans were completely bewildered and didn't know what to do next. But then, we had a dreadful stroke of bad luck. The German commander-in-chief in in the West, Model, happened to arrive in Arnhem itself at this time. He was one of the most outstanding tacticians of the war, and it was his being on the spot that made the Germans react so efficiently. Although the glider landings at Arnhem were successful, the airborne troops were put down too far away from the objective, and as a result got badly split up. Nevertheless, the parachute regiment was able to seize the bridge, which they found had not been fused for demolition. To continue with my story, we moved away from the landing zone and up into the Great Forest. As we did so, some Messerschmitts came over and started firing at the group of gliders. It was then that a very sad thing happened. A photographic expert of the Royal Air Force, who had been one of the passengers in my glider, had gone back to get his camera just as the Messerschmitts arrived, and he was killed. I must say, I was beginning to feel a bit nervous because I knew the 28 gliders in that field were the only ones in the Nymingen area other than the American parachutists who had dropped farther out. The Germans began to react. Shells began to fall in the area where we were standing. We knew that 500 Waco gliders were due to land near us, and we waited with keen anticipation for their arrival. Soon the Germans were pressing us hard, and a few we could see gathering in the valley started to fire at us, so we got down under cover. Then in the distance we heard a great roaring sound like a waterfall, and ran out into the open regardless of being shot at. There, coming towards us, was a vast armada of Dakotas and Waco gliders, two per aircraft. They flew straight on over our heads, and then, unlike the system we used, the gliders released and landed anywhere. It was a fantastic sight. The Germans were even more staggered than we were, and all firing ceased. 
One of the most amazing things about this landing was that it consisted in part of an artillery unit and before one could say Jack Robinson, the Americans had to haul their guns out of one glider, the jeeps out of another, connected the two together, run them into the woods and were shelling the German batteries. I must say, I felt a great deal safer with those guns around than I did with a number of distant parachutists. General Browning chose the site for his headquarters and we put up the airborne tents which had been packed in the jeeps. The fighting now became hot and the Americans were fairly laying into the Germans as they tried to push us out of the woods. We went down with the Americans to Nijmegen, but the Germans were fighting fantastically, and the Americans could not get near the bridge. Indeed, they suffered a great many casualties in trying to do so. The division had now distributed itself over a wide area, and it was determined to keep what it had captured of Nijmegen, especially the road leading back south to the Second Army. Soon we heard that the Guards' armour division had arrived at the Grava Bridge, and General Browning instructed me to drive him down in a jeep to meet them. I drove flat out down the road with the knowledge that the Germans were on either side of the road and that we were the carpet in between. Every now and then, we would be stopped by a formation which had been intercepted by or was intercepting Germans. Drive on, Boy Browning would say ruthlessly. I must say, I drove with my heart in my mouth. Soon, we came to the headquarters of General Maxwell Taylor, the commander of the 101st Airborne Division, with whom General Browning had a long conversation. It was clear that General Browning was worried about the situation at Arnhem, and one reason for this was that he could not maintain contact by radio. It was revealed afterwards that radio communication could only be had via London. It wasn't long before the leading elements of the Guards' Armoured Division caught up with us at Nijmegen, and with them came General Horrocks, commanding 30 Corps. He was tremendously impressed and interested by the whole of the airborne achievement, and I remember being surprised that he had never before seen a parachutist drop. The guards went on towards Arnhem, but first they had to winkle out the Germans from Nijmegen Bridge. They made two attacks, but were strongly repulsed by entrenched 88mm guns, whereupon a conference was called, as it was imperative that the guards' armoured division should cross the river to get up on the Arnhem Road. I was present at the conference, which General Browning called, with the general commanding the American 82nd Airborne Division, and the brigade commander of the advance elements of the guards' armoured division, and Colonel Tuck, commander of the American 82nd Assault Regiment. It was an extraordinary meeting, and I have never seen men so contrasted in all my life. General Browning standing in his immaculate uniform, the brigade commander of the Guards' Armoured Brigade, with clipped moustache in battle dress with the insignia of the DSO and MC on it, and wearing suede shoes, sitting on a shooting stick, and on either side of him three colonels whose black berries were adorned with the badges of the Irish Guards, the Grenadier Guards, and the Scots Guards, respectively. Their faces were covered in dust and mud, thrown up at them as they stood in their armoured cars or tanks as they dashed down the road. Each of them had an old school scarf. I noticed Eton, Harrow and Winchester above the collars of their battle dress tops and each had a pair of faded corduroy trousers and suede chucker boots. They wore a most amazing air of nonchalance and gave the impression that this was not a battle but an exercise near Caterham Barracks. In contrast to them, Colonel Tuck, the American commander, had a tin hat on which covered his whole face, a jumping jacket on, which there were several decorations, including our DSO, a pistol strapped under his arm, a knife on the right-hand side, long trousers and lace-up boots. He chewed a fat cigar and every now and then spat. Each time he did this, a faint look of surprise flickered over the faces of the guards' officers. The two generals quickly agreed that a combined Anglo-American assault must be made on the bridge as soon as possible. It was agreed that Colonel Tuck would take his assault regiment down to the river and swim across in rubber dinghies. In the meantime, one of the guards' commanders would make a rush at the bridge and attempt to break through at this end. I think that both of them had a pretty tough assignment in front of them. 
Colonel Tuck took his regiment and marched down to the river where they stood too, waiting to cross. In the meantime, the guards again attempted to break through the Germans guarding the entrance to the bridge. The guards undoubtedly were getting bloody noses and several tanks had been put out of action, but at last they managed to overwhelm the fanatical Germans on the defences. Colonel Tuck's men pumped up the rubber dinghies and pushed them out into the river. It was a most heroic action because the Germans on the other side had a complete view of them. I don't know how many hundreds went over, but not many reached the other side. Nevertheless, some did, and they drove the Germans out, moved over and got round to the other side of the bridge where they put up the Union Jack and the Stars and Stripes. In the meantime, the guards had broken through, and as the two met on the other side, a great cheer went up. Now came the crux of the matter. Over the bridge streamed the guards' armour division in their Sherman tanks. But what had been overlooked by intelligence was a village called Elst, where there were four 88mm guns, anti-tank and anti-aircraft guns, in concrete emplacements. The road leading from Nijmegen Bridge through Elst was mounted road over flat, boggy country. It was only just wide enough to take a Sherman tank, and as the Sherman tanks debouched from over the bridge, they were sitting ducks for the 88mm guns at Elst. In the meantime, the Battle of Arnhem was becoming desperate. Parachutists were still holding the bridge, but under the greatest difficulties. General Urquhart was missing, and Brigadier Hicks was in command of the division. What was more, panzer armour was appearing. Apparently, north of Arnhem, a panzer division had been refitting, or so it was thought, but actually it was only resting, and as soon as Modal realised that he was up against an airborne division with little protection against armour, he brought it in. And now the 1st Airborne Division, split up and fighting to the death, were faced with a whole panzer division. The remainder of the 1st Lift had now landed with part of the 1st Battalion, the Border Regiment, and the 2nd Battalion of the King's Own Scottish Borderers. It was their duty to seize and hold the landing grounds and dropping zones so that the 2nd Lift, due to land on the next day, might do so in safety. The latter had a misty takeoff and a rather rough crossing and some came down in the sea to be rescued by the air sea rescue. Throughout the afternoon and night the borderers held the dropping zones being thrice unsuccessfully attacked by the Germans. The same thing happened to the border regiment holding the dropping zones to the south. They suffered a great deal from mortar fire. The following narratives give some idea of these landings. The first narrative is by Staff Sergeant Gordon Jenks. All operational crews report for breakfast at 07.30 hours. The voice on the tannoy kept repeating over and over again. I sat up in bed and promptly lay down again. My head was aching like hell and my mouth tasted like something out of a dustbin. I lit a cigarette and sat up more slowly this time. My second pilot was showing signs of activity so I spoke to him. They're not kidding this time, this is for keeps, we're really going. Dressing slowly I thought about the night before. We had been confined to camp, the usual procedure after being briefed for an operation, and had settled down for a drinking session in the mess with our Halifax tug crew. Prior to this briefing, we had been briefed for about 16 ops since D-Day, and they had all been cancelled for some reason or other. Most of us thought this one would be scrubbed as well, so we were rather surprised when no cancellation had been announced by midnight. The mess had been crowded with glider pilots and tug crews, having a steady few pints. In one corner, a big school was playing shoot, and at one time there was over 90 quid in the kitty. By 10 o'clock, blokes started to drift off to their various billets, and by midnight, there were only few of us left. I'd had a gutful of beer by then, so called it a day and went to bed. Now, as I dressed, I was beginning to wish I hadn't had so much to drink. After a wash and a shave, I stuck my head under the cold water tap for a couple of minutes and felt a whole lot better. Back in the billet, I finished dressing, grabbing my flying helmet, weapons and equipment, and made tracks for the mess dining hall, along with several other glider pilots and RAF aircrew. That breakfast. 
It was to haunt me in the months to come when I was starving in a POW camp. Sausages, eggs, bacon and coffee. All I could do was drink the coffee and turn my nose up at the grub. Into waiting trucks and down to a magnificent sight. Halifaxes, Hamilcar gliders, more Halifaxes, horse gliders. They looked absolutely terrific, lined up ready for takeoff. I soon spotted my Hamilcar. It was third in line and had Bunhouse chalked in it in large white letters. You've guessed it, the Bunhouse was the name of my local pub where I'd spent many a happy hour on leave. After checking the controls, I climbed down to have another look over the load which the Bunhouse had to carry that day and deposit safely in a field somewhere in Europe and about 60 odd miles behind the German lines. It was a pretty formidable load by any standards, consisting of a 17-pounder anti-tank gun and trailer, eight men and a three-ton lorry and some high-explosive shells. The Bunhouse was going to need every inch of runway to get this lot off the deck. Time for takeoff, and we all climbed aboard. I made myself as comfortable as possible and fastened my safety belt tightly. The Hamilcar in front of me started to move as the towmaster waved his flags. My turn. 90, 95, and now she was fairly eating up the runway. 100 mph on the clock, and I eased back the control column. The bun house came off like a bird, and I held her just above the slipstream of the tug. The end of the runway was getting far too near for my liking before the Halifax got off the deck, but at last we were airborne and beginning to climb. As we climbed slowly, I called up the tug to test the intercom. Matchbox to zero, matchbox to zero, testing over... The reply soon came. Zero to matchbox, zero to matchbox. How's things, Lofty? I answered. All right, cock, just make sure you keep your ruddy finger pulled out. I called up the boys down below. Everything okay down there? Somebody answered. Okay, Lofty. Right, well, make yourselves at home. We've got a long way to go. I didn't see a lot of other aircraft around at this stage. There seemed to be a few combinations of tugs and gliders dotted about haphazardly. The two Hamel cars that had taken off before me were just ahead and slightly to starboard. Flying the leading one was Major Alec Dickie Dale, DFC, the squadron commander. He was only a little man, but he had tremendous courage and we all admired and respected him. After we'd been stooging along for an hour or so, I decided to give the boys below a shaking up by taking the bunhouse down through the slipstream and flying below the tug. It's a perfectly harmless procedure really and a practice adopted by glider pilots when flying through cloud. To the uninitiated, however, it could be rather an alarming experience the first time. I eased the control column forward and the bunhouse trembled violently as she was caught in the slipstream from four powerful engines. I held her in it for about 30 seconds, pushed the control column farther forward and we went through into the relatively calm air below. We were now flying behind and below the tug and could see its belly. A voice called up on the intercom from below. It was Taffy, a young Welsh boy not yet 19 and as tough as they come. Hello lofty man, what on earth is going on? I said it's all right Taffy Bach and explain what was happening. We would soon be approaching the East Coast, so I gently coaxed the bug house back through the slipstream to her more normal flying station behind and above the tug. I looked around me and was very impressed with what I saw. Where before I had just noticed odd combinations dotted about, there were now literally hundreds of aircraft converging into one solid mass. As we flew across the coast, the sight was fantastic. A brilliant blue sky with not a cloud to be seen. Below us, the North Sea looked as calm as a mill pond. To starboard of the Bunhouse, I could see more aircraft than I had ever seen in the sky at one time. They were all there. Halifaxes, Hamilcars, Stirlings, Horses, Dakotas, Waco gliders and squadron after squadron of Dakotas carrying paratroopers. Below me, I saw a horser going down to ditch in the North Sea, having broken the tow rope. 
I spotted an air-sea rescue launch speeding out to pick up the occupants. Off to my port side, I couldn't see a single aircraft as we were flying just to the left of the main stream. The coastline loomed up, and when we'd crossed it, things warmed up a bit. Ahead I could see our fighter escort doing their stuff. Whenever German ak guns dared to open up, rocket-firing typhoons were diving on them and making life generally unpleasant. We were getting nearer to our target now, and a few puffs of white smoke suddenly appeared around the bun house. I felt a couple of slight bumps. A voice called up from down below. Hey, Lofty! The blinking glider's on fire! I replied with as much sarcasm as I could muster. Well then, sonnet, and put the ink out then. I could see a fairish amount of smoke coming from the port wing just near the fuselage, but decided it was only a piece of shrapnel that had lodged in there and was smouldering. Later, I learned that another piece of shrapnel had gone through the fuselage, hit one of the gunners a glancing blow on the hand, and then had lain smouldering on the floor. It caused a lot of smoke, and it was this that made the gunners think that the bun house was on fire. Another stray piece of shrapnel had apparently damaged the controls as neither the airspeed indicator nor the altimeter was working. We were almost at the release point now, and the scene below looked exactly as it had appeared on the photographs at briefing the previous day. To starboard, I could see the main reason for our trip, the bridge across the Rhine. Below and just ahead were the river and a railway embankment. Just beyond them, I could clearly see the two fields divided by a hedge or stone fence which had been allocated to the Hamilcars as a landing zone. The Hamilcars in front of me had now released and were going in. The tug skipper called me on the intercom. All right, Lofty, you can release whenever you like. I said, OK, Arthur, thanks for the ride. See you soon. With that, I pulled the tit and eased the control column back to gain a bit more height while I appraised the landing situation. The sky was chaotic now, worse than a traffic jam at Piccadilly Circus in the rush hour, only these were aircraft instead of cars. I decided to get on the tail of the Hamel car in front and follow it into the first field. I had to guess my height and speed for reasons previously mentioned. Below me and to my left, another Hamel car appeared, going in much too fast and too low. It hit the railway embankment at a terrific speed and somersaulted with a vivid flash. I wondered which of my pals was in that one. Over the railway embankment now, I could see Dickie Dale had touched down in the first field. He seemed to be making pretty heavy going of it, and his Hamilcar appeared to be careering all over the place and breaking up. The bun house was positioned nicely for a landing now, and behaving very well. I called my second pilot. Keep your eyes open for any gliders coming too near us, Harry. I want to concentrate on the landing. There was no reply, and I didn't know whether he'd heard me or not. At this point, the Hamilcar in front of me touched down, going very fast. The ground must have been very soft and the pilot must have slammed his brakes on as soon as he touched down because the Hamilcar promptly dug its wheels in and flipped over onto its back. Again, there was a terrific flash. That decided me against this particular field. I reckoned that if I put the bun house into a dive now, she would have enough speed for me to hold her off the deck until we had cleared the fence and get safely into the farthest of the two fields. I pushed the control column forward and we went into a dive. We must have been halfway across the first field when I levelled out a few feet off the ground. The bun house responded beautifully to my every action. What a gem of an aircraft she was. We were still doing about 90 miles per hour when I eased her gently over the fence and put her down in the next field as light as a feather. I let her run for perhaps 30 or 40 yards before applying the brakes and she came to a halt. The bun house had made her last majestic flight. The day. Sunday. The date. September 17th, 1944. The place? Arnhem. This is Lieutenant Colonel John Place's account of his flight to Arnhem. 
We took off from Broadwell near Bryce Norton on Sunday, September the 17th, and as my glider number 161 started to roll behind the tug, I looked at my watch which registered 09.45 hours. The weather was reasonably bright but overcast, and in a few moments after takeoff we were climbing through cloud, and as I was never any good with the angular dangle I had to concentrate hard on keeping position. However, in a moment or two we were in a clear sky above the overcast, and all around stretched a rolling sea of white, dazzlingly bright, in the clear sunlight of the morning. Then we headed towards Aldborough on the Suffolk coast, which was our forming up point before heading out across the sea for Holland. My co-pilot was Ralph Maltby, our number two wing intelligence officer, and on board we had 28 men of the border regiment, together with a handcart loaded with paraphernalia of the airborne platoon which we carried, including mortar bombs. I shall never forget the incredibly wonderful sight of scores of tug and glider combinations, stretching in what seemed almost unending lines to the horizon, and all converging towards our forming up point. My tug and glider arrived at our forming up point, and we were number one in the vast line, and so turned out to sea. I remember looking down and noticing that the cloud had broken up very considerably from below us. The sea looked like beaten bronze, with a few small warships, or what looked like warships, and possibly RAF air-sea rescue craft scattered here and there. We had scarcely been on our way for more than a few minutes, when Wing Commander Jeff Jefferson, our tug pilot, rung up on the intercom to say that his C-47 lacked power and he found he couldn't maintain sufficient cruising speed to stay in front of the stream of tugs and gliders, and suggested that the only way we could stay in front was to cut out the dogleg we were scheduled to make over the sea. This dogleg should have taken us on a northeasterly course from Aldborough, and then over the sea we should have altered course in a southeasterly direction and passed over the island of Schuen in Holland. Jeff asked whether we should cut the dogleg, and I agreed, and so we flew off on our own and watched the mainstream angling away to our port side. I think both Jeff and I were a little apprehensive in case a wandering enemy fighter should spot us, but we felt reasonably secure as there seemed to be a large number of our own fighter screen all over the sky. It was not very long, however, before the Dutch coast came into view, and as we approached we were relieved to notice the main glider stream coming in fairly fast on our left. As we crossed the flooded island of Schuen, we were in our correct position as number one. It was not long after crossing the Dutch coast that we got our first lot of light flak thrown up at us, luckily very inaccurately, and the only effect it had was to cause a somewhat startling rattle or vibration throughout the glider. It was just about this time that Ralph and I saw something which puzzled us for a moment or two, and that was a wavy white streak shoot up from the ground and continue curving up into the bright sky until it finally disappeared, leaving a thin trail of smoke which disappeared very high up. It was only after a few minutes that we realised that we had watched a V2 take off on its way to England. Our first sight of Holland was depressing. Schuen was almost completely inundated. Here and there a lonely roof and a few trees showed above the floodwaters and now and again we saw the steeples of churches and a few more house roofs to mark where villages had been partially submerged. There did not appear to be a sign of life anywhere. Shortly after the first rattle of flak when Ralph and I were engaged in reassuring ourselves that it was a long way off, we were startled out of our wits by shouts from our passengers of Sir, sir, the tail is coming off. For a second or two, Ralph and I looked at each other and then I very gingerly tested my elevators and rudder by pitching and yawing the glider as quickly as possible. Everything seemed all right, but I told Ralph to go back and find out what the trouble was. He undid his safety belt and got up from his seat and disappeared through the dividing doors from the cockpit. About two or three minutes later, he came back grinning all over his face and told me that he had had a look out of both doors and so far as he could see, there was nothing wrong with our tail or any other part of the glider. 
He also said that he thought that the passengers had heard and felt the vibrations of the flak explosions and had momentarily been a bit worried. We were flying in the low toe position at this time and we still had about half an hour to go before reaching the LZ. Ralph had just trapped himself back into his seat when I told him to take over as I wanted to check up on the map. I had barely got my map out in front of me and was bending over, tracing our course, when I heard a sudden, very rapid and curious swish, swish sound, which was quite loud. I couldn't make out, for a fraction of a second, what was causing it, but when I looked out of my window, I saw a lot of little red sparks shooting upwards from beneath the cockpit and past my port window. Next second, there was a tremendous bang right in the cockpit and a thin wisp of greyish smoke. I automatically grasped the control column, and as I did so, I could smell high explosive. Then... Poor Ralph rolled sideways in his seat as far as his straps would let him. I shouted for somebody to come forward and see what could be done for Ralph, and the platoon sergeant poked a startled head into the cockpit. I told him to try to get Ralph back onto the floor of the cockpit, but before he could do so, Ralph was dead, and so I told him to leave him in his seat and to shut the door. By this time, I was considerably frightened, because I realised that if I was incapacitated, nobody else knew how to get the glider onto the ground in one piece. And I was terribly sad about poor Ralph, who was a grand boy and a personal friend. I remember ringing up Jeff, the tug pilot, and asking him if he could possibly weave about a bit as we'd been hit by flak and Ralph was dead. Jeff apologised and said he was very sorry, but that he had not enough boost to jink around. In fact, I think he was rather worried to think that he would not get us to the LZ. However, a few minutes later, he rang up to say that the LZ was in sight and asked me if I could see it. The LZ was absolutely plain and I recognised it immediately and began to make preparations for casting off and going down. By this time, another glider combination or two came almost level with us as we were still not cruising quite as fast as the rest of the stream. As we turned northwards towards the LZ from the line of the River Rhine, which we'd followed more or less from the coast past the small town of Setogombosch, I looked to see if we were still at our operational height of 2,500 feet. It was only then that I noticed that most of my instrument panel was in bits and I began to have serious doubts about whether we had any air in the flat bottles as the flak had obviously come into the cockpit from below on the right-hand side. I thought the best thing to do was to do a steep climb after pulling off, stall, try the flaps as I approached the stall and if I had any air go straight down. If not, then I would try a series of pancakes down to the ground. As we arrived at the LZ, Jeff rang up and wished us good luck and said to pull off when we were ready, and this we did. Fortunately, there was air in the flaps, and I went straight down almost vertically. I think we must have been shot at from somewhere on the ground, as, after landing, I discovered that we had two other casualties in the back, though neither was fatal. Having got onto the ground, the men of the border regiment carried out a copybook debussing, surrounding the aircraft in a defensive position on the ground. They unloaded the handcart, and as soon as they were ready, got out their two casualties, and then we got Ralph out, and laid him under the glider wing and moved off to the rendezvous. As I moved off to my own rendezvous, I was very deeply touched by a young private of the borders who came up to me, stood smartly to attention, and said, Sir, I just want to thank you. The dividing of the 1st Airborne Division into three lifts could possibly be the reason for the situation becoming critical in the battle, for the fact that Major General Urquhart had two battalions of the Air Landing Brigade held down protecting the landing zones must have caused embarrassment. The lightly armoured parachute battalions battling on the high ground west and north of Arnhem found the German resistance too strong for them, armed as they were. If they had had the assistance of the more heavily armed air landing battalions, would the positions have been altered? It is more than likely. The general commanding the 1st Airborne Division had to protect the landing zones at all costs, 
for to be defeated there would have led to a hopeless situation. As it was, at a crucial moment on September the 17th, 1944, the necessary punch was not there. Had the whole division been available at the moment, carried in one lift, it is possible the position would have been very different. The failure of the second lift to arrive on time undoubtedly made matters worse. It was due to arrive at 10am on the 18th of September, but all the airstrips in England were enveloped in fog and the second lift could not leave the ground. To add to the trouble, it was a beautiful day in the Arnhem area and everyone there waited in despair as time passed and the lift failed to appear. Alas, it was unable to leave for some hours and did not land until about four in the afternoon. Those six hours made all the difference. It is tragic to realise how much has to be learned by mistakes of this kind. I was aware of the great difficulty that the commander had in obtaining sufficient aircraft and the constant battle put up by both Air Vice Marshal Hollinghurst and General Boy Browning. It was a battle for request of aircraft and more aircraft. How can one sum up the situation? The aircraft were needed for other operations, but I often ask myself, was it possibly also prejudice? Was it that strange dead hand which had so often handicapped us in earlier campaigns? The airborne effort was regarded as an expensive luxury by many of the more orthodox officers of the RAF, the glider almost a nuisance and farce. In fact, I know some considered it was nothing short of an insult to tie another aircraft to the tail of a bomber. Imagine what might have happened if the 1st Airborne Division had arrived in one lift on the morning of September the 17th. Had this happened and tipped the balance, had the Arnhem Bridge been captured and held, Monty's dream might have come true, the Siegfried Line might have been turned by the autumn of 1944 and the advance on Berlin might have been made much earlier by the Allies. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.